Well, we are in a series called Love Revolution, and we've been studying so far the first epistle of John, the first letter that he wrote. And uh, we're going to finish that letter tonight. And next Wednesday night, we're going to take a, a look at the two shorter letters that he wrote, just personal letters almost, uh, second and third John. All of John's writing is just crammed into the uh, end of the first century, right at the end of the New Testament and at the end of John's life. Uh, we haven't heard anything much from John up until now. Uh, there isn't any of, us, uh, any of his sermons recorded anywhere in the New Testament because Peter and Paul have done most of the preaching and Paul has done nearly all of the writing. And so we haven't heard much from John. But now all of those people are gone. They were martyred three decades earlier, along with Matthew and Mark and Luke and James and Jude. They're all gone. And John is the last man standing at the end of the first century, the sole surviving elder, the sole surviving apostle of the New Testament church. And it's been that way for 30 years. And John is looking around as he lives toward the end of the first century, and he's watching truth being attacked even by some that call themselves Christians. And so this apostle of love, that's what we've nicknamed him in church history, this apostle of love picks up his pen, not because he's going to give some sappy, sentimental encouragement to people and call it love. No, he picks up his pen because he loves Jesus, and he loves truth, and he loves the church. And so he picks up his pen to say something. And John's letters are about God's love toward us, no question. But they are also about our love toward God. It's love turned around. It's love reciprocated. It's love sent back to the source. And so it's a love revolution. We begin tonight with the last chapter of the first letter of John. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we keep his commandments. John has already laid this out. We talked about it last week. Uh, John says that the number one test for every spirit, every prophet, every pastor or teacher or doctrine is what they teach about Jesus Christ. That's the number one test. Do they believe that Jesus is almighty God or not? You see, the Gnostics in John's day, they claimed to follow Jesus, but they didn't believe that he was one with the Father. They believed something different. And John didn't mince words or pull punches. He said, this is the spirit of Antichrist. It attempts to oppose Christ or to replace Christ with something else. Now, in the verses we just read, the word begat and the word begotten, they refer to sonship and they refer to time. If you say you love God and Jesus was the only begotten son of God, John wrote that in his gospel, John 3.16. If you love God and Jesus is the only begotten son of God, then you have to love Jesus. There is no other option. There's a lot of false pseudo-spirituality floating around today where people want to have spiritual experiences and they talk a lot about God, but they totally ignore the words and the teachings of Jesus. John said, that's the spirit 
of Antichrist. And, and so John is, is teaching here, and he says, you know, I remember that Jesus said, John was there, I and my Father are one. So Jesus was not the Son of God eternally. There's no such thing as the eternal Son of God. The Bible tells us in Galatians 4 and 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. So there was a time that God robed himself in flesh. There was a time that this office of the son of God or the body of God came into being. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 and verse 5, he talks about uh, this day have I begotten thee. There came a moment in time when God decided to do something he had never done before and that was take on a body of flesh. And that's why the term God the Son is not in your Bible. It is the Son of God. It's not two different people, two different persons in the Godhead. It is one God who chose, because he loved us, to manifest himself as a human being and die on the cross for us. The physical body that God inhabited for 33 and a half years has not been on earth for nearly 2,000 years. And yet, God still has a body on earth today. So we don't just love some nebulous idea of God floating out in the cosmos. We love Jesus who contained all the fullness of the Godhead bodily according to Colossians 2 and 9. He was God robed in human flesh. Furthermore, we understand that he is the head of the body, the church, Colossians 1.18. So we don't just love some nebulous idea of a God, a force, a higher being, a higher power. We don't just love some nebulous idea of God. We love Jesus who was God robed in a body of flesh and we love his church which is his body on the earth today. That's what John's talking about. But at the end of the first century, John has been looking around. He's the last surviving apostle. And he's been observing some false teachers and some false believers. And to say John is troubled would be an understatement. He watches. They say they love God. They say they love Jesus. They say they love the church. They appear to be filled with love, but it is not genuine. So John repeats his emphatic statement that he's made already several times. He repeats it one more time. Apostolic believers don't just love some nebulous idea of God. They keep God's commandments. He said it repeatedly. He repeats it here again. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. There's a lot of people talking in John's day and talking in our day about, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. They don't do anything that Jesus tells them to do. Jesus said to a group of people one day, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not the things that I say? Now, we look at that verse, and as we would expect the word keep, keep his commandments, it has the sense of obedience. But that word also means to guard, to watch, or to protect. Real believers cherish God's commandments. 
We don't see his laws and his rules and his commandments as burdens. We see them as blessings. And you watch this as new believers come into a local church body and they grow. An immature believer, uh, they think this way, well, I have to. I have to do that, and I have to do that, and I have to comply with that, and I have to obey that. I have to. But as you watch them start to grow, you'll, you'll watch the transformation. They start thinking like this. I want to. I want to obey God's word. I want to do what Jesus requires me to do. I want to do what the apostles taught. But boy, you get to a mature believer that's been immersed in the Holy Ghost for a few years and they're not saying I have to or even I want to. They're saying I get to. I get to live for God. I get to keep his commandments. I get to obey his word. It's a whole different ball of wax because to a mature believer, God's commandments are not grievous. They are not heavy, burdensome, severe, difficult, or cruel. See, we don't get angry at fences because we appreciate what fences do for us. And God's commandments, brothers and sisters, are a fence that separates us from the world. A fence isn't about keeping good things in. It's about keeping bad things out. So any good pastor, any good parent, they'll build some fences Pastors will build some fences around the saints that they love and serve. Parents will definitely build some fences around the children that they're raising and that they love so much. And God doesn't fall behind any earthly parent that wants to protect their kids. God also puts some fences around our lives. John continues, he said, For whatever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody who has been born again, John's term here is they've been born of God. They will continually overcome the world. Overcometh. They will continually overcome the world. That is the blessing of obedience. When you obey God's commands and you let God build a fence around you through the power of his word, you overcome the world because you are obeying his commands. Notice the conjunction four that joins verse three that we just read. His commandments are not grievous. Four whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. God's commandments are not grievous to us for, meaning because or since or seeing that or due to the fact that those who obey God's commandments overcome the world. That's why his commandments aren't grievous to us because if we obey his commandments, we overcome every sinful, sick thing in this world. That's why his commandments aren't grievous. His commandments aren't grievous because those that obey them, those that are born of God, we overcome the world. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith. The people that overcome the world love Jesus and they keep his commandments. Now that verse right there, that's not saying that you only need to believe in order to be an overcomer. That's actually backwards to what the verse is saying. The verse is saying that the evidence of being a genuine believer is that you will live an overcoming life. 
This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. If you've got genuine faith, you will be an overcomer in your life. You won't be ensnared with all of the mess of the world that you used to be ensnared with. Now, John shifts gears slightly here, but it's, it's a powerful, powerful subject that he moves into next. In verse 6, he says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit. Now he introduces a third element. We've got water and blood and now spirit. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. Jesus was baptized. That's the water part. He was baptized at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he was crucified. That's the blood part at the end of his earthly ministry. Those were the bookends of his earthly ministry for three and a half years. His baptism is when it began, and his crucifixion, of course, is when it ended. And the Spirit gave witness that he was the Son of God at both events. When Jesus was baptized, you remember this. There was a voice out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And when Jesus was crucified, oh my goodness, the Spirit was there to witness. The earth shook and the rocks rent and all kinds of things. The sky darkened. You see, what was happening is that Spirit, John said, was bearing witness because that Spirit is truth. And it was the Spirit of God that raised up that body from the dead. Romans 8, 11 said, If the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, it'll even quicken your mortal body. We get to have in us the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. you got a lot more power in you than you think you have in you. You've got a lot more power in you than you are even aware of because it is the same Spirit that raised the body of Jesus from the dead. And the Spirit did that. It crowned his baptism. It witnessed at his crucifixion. And it raised that body from the dead all to bear witness that Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a martyr. He wasn't just some kind of teacher or even a miracle worker. He was God manifest in flesh. Verse 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. So you know the three that bear witness in heaven. But there are also three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. These three are not one, but they agree in one. They work together for one purpose. Now John already told us who the Word is. In the first chapter of his own gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who was that Word? It was Jesus. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
from time immemorial. In fact, in eternity past before time, God intended to manifest himself to humanity in three ways. He is the father in creation. He took on flesh and became what we call the son of God. That gave us redemption. But now he is the spirit that fills his church, that fills every believer, and he gives us the power to live for him. And he intended that from the beginning. So the word, when John says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, the Word is obviously Jesus, the Son of God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are not literally three persons, three distinct beings. John said, no, these three are one. John is not alluding to a trinity here. Because at this point in church history, there is no such thought as a trinity. That's another couple hundred years down the pike. That hasn't happened yet. But there are trinities. They exist in some of the pagan religions of the day. In the Far East, India has what they call a trimurti, Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva. Israel's ancient slave master, Egypt, they have a trinity too. Osiris, Horus, and Isis. Israel's enemy Babylon has a trinity. Nimrod, Tammuz, and Semiramis. And the brilliant Greeks, they have a trinity. Zeus, Apollo, and Athena. And the brutal Romans, they have what they call a capitoline triad. Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. And John knows from his history that even in the Old Testament, every time Israel backslid, they served a Canaanite trinity. Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth. So John is certainly not trying to introduce the idea of a trinity when he says these three are one. The emphasized and operative word is not three, it is one. John has in mind for you to think of this scripture as he says, and these three are one. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's what he wants you to think about. So these three manifestations of God, John says there are three that bear witness in heaven. What do they bear witness to? What do, the, what do they bear witness to? They bear witness that Jesus is God. He was God in creation. He was God when he walked this earth. He was God when he gave his life on Calvary. And he's still God today as he fills his church. Every believer around the world, we're so grateful that we understand there is one God and his name is Jesus. And John said in a similar way, there are three down here that bear witness. They are the spirit and the water, and the blood. Now these three aren't one, but they agree in one. They work together for one purpose. Blood, water, and spirit are seen together throughout Scripture. You can go to several stories. You could go to Israel being delivered from Egypt on the night of the Passover. They had to put blood on their doorposts. They walked through the waters of the Red Sea. And then a supernatural pillar of cloud and fire led them away from Egypt and led them through the wilderness. So even in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, you see the three elements, blood, water, and spirit working together. You definitely see them in the tabernacle. There were three pieces out of the six 
pieces of furniture, three pieces were directly involved in atonement. And those were the brazen altar where blood was shed, the brazen laver where the priest immersed his hands to wash the blood off, and then the Ark of the Covenant where once a year the high priest would go in into the manifest Shekinah presence of God and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So you also have in the tabernacle the three elements, blood, water, and spirit. They are working together. You see them at different points in the word of God. And John says here at the end of the first century, hey, remember, there are three elements that work together in God's plan, blood, water, and spirit. They agree in one. They're not one, but they agree. They work together for one purpose, and they bear witness in earth. They work down here. They work among humanity. And this is why the apostle Paul, when he introduces the doctrine of the gospel and he just lays it out very plain in 1 Corinthians 15, he says the gospel itself contains three elements. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul is referring to these same three elements. Uh, He's referring to a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And that's why the original altar call of the New Testament church given by Peter on the day of Pentecost contains the same three elements of salvation. Then Peter said unto them, repent, That's a death. You die to your old life. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's a burial. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a spirit resurrection. So Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, there are three elements in your obedience to the gospel. Paul said there are three elements in the good news of the gospel. And the Bible tells us at various points there are three elements that work together. Blood, water, spirit. Spirit, death, burial, resurrection. And so that's what John's saying. What a plan God put together that this magnificent God loved humanity so much that he would make a salvation plan available. When you repent and you're baptized in Jesus' name and you are filled with the Holy Ghost, that doesn't put you into a religion. That puts you into a relationship with God that you can have even when we're in the middle of a pandemic and you can't get to church all the time because of all the restrictions. You can still have a living, moving relationship with God every day because you're not in this church because you signed a card somewhere. You're in this church because of the blood, the water, and the spirit. You're in this church because of death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus died for me. I die for him in repentance. Jesus was buried for me. I am buried and identify with him in baptism. And Jesus, best of all, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, and that same spirit that lifted him up out of that grave, that same spirit dwells in me, and it quickens my mortal body. It gives me power to live for God. Now that's a plan of salvation that is pretty amazing and immense. John said, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. 
For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Paul said, or John said, if you would accept the testimony of a man in a court of law, how much more should we accept the testimony of God that is written in the Holy Scriptures? This is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He that believeth on the Son of God has that witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made himself a liar. You didn't make God a liar. You made you a liar. And John says, because he believeth not the record, the scriptures, that God gave of his son. You see, brothers and sisters, we already know this. I'm preaching to the choir quite literally tonight. It all depends on what you do with Jesus. Everything depends on what you do with Jesus. We make no apology for declaring that. If you receive God's witness, then you will receive that witness in yourself. It's the Holy Ghost. But if you refuse to receive God's witness, God makes you a liar. That means a false, faithless man. And that happens all because you refuse to believe the Scripture, the record, and the Scriptures are conclusive in saying, that this Jesus who walked the shores of the Galilee and who walked the streets of Nazareth and who was crucified in Jerusalem and who healed people in Jericho, this Jesus is God. The Bible is conclusive on that point. And this is the record. You want to know what the record is? This is the record. That God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If you've got Jesus, you've got life. If you don't have Jesus, you may be walking around making money, planning for retirement, but you don't have life. God offers eternal life to humanity, but you don't receive eternal life automatically. doesn't happen that way. It all depends on what you do with Jesus. Eternal life is found only in the name of Jesus. John was the last writer of the first century and in the face of so much error and so many false doctrines, he wants to nail down and anchor that new church less than a century old. He wants them to be anchored to truth. And so he says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. That sounds very, very similar to the way he starts winding up his gospel at the end of chapter 20. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. John said he did a lot of things while he was here on earth, but they are not written in this book. I didn't write them in the gospel or it wouldn't have been 21 chapters. It would be 21 million chapters. I didn't write them. But John said I've selected some things to write, but these are written. These miracles are written. These uh, teachings are written. These events are written. These are written for one reason, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his 
name. You want life? You got to have Jesus. You want eternal life? You've got to have Jesus. Because Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything God wants humanity to receive is found in Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, you got to know what Jesus is like because Jesus was God manifested in flesh. John tells us that our confidence is not built on ourselves. Our confidence before God is not built on religious deeds, good deeds. And our confidence before God is definitely not based or built on our feelings. Your feelings are extremely subjective and totally unreliable. You can talk yourself out of a miracle. You can talk yourself out of a blessing. You can talk yourself out of your own relationship with God if you just constantly go by your feelings. Our confidence is not built on good deeds. It's not built on ourselves. It's not built on our feelings. Our confidence is built on knowing Jesus. And John has several times in this brief letter, he's told us how we can know that we know that we know Jesus. And when you have security in your relationship with God, when you know that you know Jesus, then we have confidence that God hears us when we pray. And that's where John goes next. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. How can we have confidence in our relationship with God? John's answer is submit to his word. Love his commandments. Keep his commandments. That's how you can have confidence in your relationship with God that you are keeping and submitting and obeying his word. How can we have confidence, John, in prayer? He said, well, that's easy too. Submit to his will. Pray according to God's will. Well, okay, John, but how do I know what God's will is? Well, you know his will through his word. That's how you can have confidence that you can pray. You stand on the promises of the word of God. You can only pray according to his will if you know God's will in the first place. His will is in his word. And John's about ready to conclude his letter. But don't get too much hope that pastor's about ready to conclude his sermon. It'll come there eventually. As he concludes his letter, John drives home the point that real Christians, he said this over and over, real Christians don't just talk about Jesus. They walk with Jesus. And John gets very passionate as he ends this letter because he knows that the church that he loves has entered treacherous times. And if you would allow me to speak with maybe a little of the passion of John at the end of this Bible study tonight, I would offer to you my opinion that I think the church in our generation has also entered some treacherous times. There are all kinds of false 
teachings and weird doctrines and, and, and pseudo-spirituality that are floating around. And as John sees the church have to negotiate all those factors, he gets pretty passionate about it. And so he said, church, you need to be on guard for each other. You need to watch out for each other. You need to be a family in reality and not just in name. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. He will ask in prayer. You go to prayer for a brother that you see that he stumbled and he sinned and he, he's, he's in trouble because you're family. John says, there is a sin unto death. Now, this is an odd statement. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. I would, I would phrase that like this. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is a sin not unto death. Everything you do against God's word, everything you do against God's will is sin. But some sins are far more serious than other sins. A sin not unto death. That's the one that John says, if you see a brother sinning a sin and it's not unto death, you pray for him. A sin not unto death is an accidental sin. It's when you trip and you mess up and you fail. And it's quickly repented of in the life of a Christian, in the life of a brother is John's term. But a sin unto death is a willful sin that remains unrepented of in the life of an apostate, somebody that has chosen to walk away from truth and they are willfully doing things that they know the word of God tells them not to. And that sin is a sin unto death because it leads to eternal death. Now John has already defined some of these sins in this very letter. An apostate could be somebody that has renounced the, the, the oneness of God, the identity of Jesus. It could be somebody that has refused the commandments of God over and over. Or it could be somebody that doesn't love the brethren. They have rejected the people of God. And John said, yes, sin is sin, but some sins are far more serious than others. Some sins cut you off from truth. Some sins cut you off from the church. Some sins cut you off from the commandments of God. Some sins cut you off from Jesus Christ when you turn your back on him willfully. Sin is sin, but some sins are more serious than others. Now John, is we call him the apostle of love, but he doesn't even urge us to pray for apostates. You can if you want. It's not going to hurt anything. But he doesn't urge us to pray for apostates. Why? Because they made a choice to walk away from truth. So they have to make a choice to return, to repent, and to come back to truth. He's not saying don't pray for them. He's saying you're going to have far more success in praying for somebody that's struggling and they know they're in trouble and they're in agony and they're repenting. That person, that's going to be easy to pray for. But it's a different story when somebody, like the people in John's day, literally turned their back 
on the apostolic church and turned their back on the revelation of who Jesus is and turned their back on God's commandments. John said, that is a sin unto death. That's a sin with eternal consequences. He said, we know that whosoever is born of God, whosoever is born again, sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. I want to back that up one more time, and I want you to pay attention to the little suffix E-T-H on the end of words, because that means a continuing action. Watch this. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Once again, using this little King James uh, twist that we, we can recognize, John is emphasizing something important. Genuine Christians, they may fall, they may stumble, they may fail, they may sin. But genuine Christians do not live in habitual sin. Instead, they continually keepeth. They continually keep themselves from wickedness. While the world continually continually lieth, it continually gives itself to wickedness. But not a person that's born of God. They are constantly on the lookout, constantly on guard, constantly keeping themselves from sin. And this is the good news. As a result of that kind of consecration, as a result of staying on guard in your spirit, the Bible says that wicked one toucheth continually uh, harassing, continually attacking, that wicked one toucheth him not. Because of their consecration, the devil may tempt them, the devil may trouble them, but he can't touch them. Touch in this context means the devil can't connect with them. The devil can't attach himself to them. The devil can't strike them down. He can't damage them. One, one meaning of that word is to kindle a fire. The devil can't uh, touch you and do incredible harm to you. Not if you are keeping yourself through the power of the Holy Ghost and your obedience to God's commandments. John is warning them at the end of this letter. Uh, he doesn't probably know whether he's going to write another couple of letters uh, later on. And they're a different kind of letter anyway so this is kind of the big conclusion here John says you know those people that are born of God all you apostolic believers apostolic believers do not habitually sin they do not continually break the rules of God they do not continually ignore the commandments because that is a sin that can be unto eternal death he's warning them he's urging them you got to watch yourself when you live in a treacherous era of time because the world just drums into your head it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's just 
whatever you want to do. You're an individual. You have your own truth. You have your own religion. You have your own idea of spirituality. You have your own version of God. None of that is true. There's only one God and he's the only God who came to this planet and intersected human history to save us. And so you've got to watch yourself when the church is in a treacherous generation. John was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. John was there. John saw it happen. We know that the Son of God is come, he says. And he is writing at the end of the first century, 60 years after the day of Pentecost, 30 years after all of his leaders, his colleagues in leadership are gone, he's writing so that others may have an understanding of the powerful truth preached by the New Testament church that Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just the deceased founder of our faith. Jesus was and is and ever shall be almighty God. John said, we know that is true. We are in him that is true. And we know him that is true. Jesus is the true God. And because he is God, Jesus alone can give us eternal life. End of story. John said, and we know that the Son of God has come. I know it. I was there. I saw it. And he has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus, John? Oh, I got an easy answer for that. This is the true God and this is eternal life. And John ends his letter with affection. He calls them little children. That's his term of endearment for this church. But he also ends it with an admonition. Little children, I love you, but keep yourselves from idols. He doesn't elaborate at all. He doesn't say, now let's do a word study on idols. And No, he doesn't elaborate that at all on that at all because he's already made it very clear through this whole letter what idols might be. Real Christians love God. Real Christians love God's commandments. Real Christians love God's church. He said it over and over again. So an idol isn't just an image made out of stone in John's mind. An idol isn't just some carving out of wood, not in New Testament theology. An idol is anything that you prioritize over God, over God's commandments, or over God's church. And that's why John says, So, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We live in a day that is at least as bad, if not worse, if not exponentially worse than the day John lived in. I don't take anything away from the New Testament church. They face persecution that we have never faced here in our beautiful and free nation of Canada. We are abundantly blessed. But we face all kinds of seducing spirits and doctrines of the end times 
that they didn't deal with in the same way. And we have one of the great perks. We're using it right now. It is media. But we all know from the last year when we've heard the term fake news make its way into our vernacular and we've seen the polarizing of, of information and even facts twisted and all kinds of things and I don't take a position for one side or the other because, hey, it's all the world. And as far as God is concerned, the world is passing away and everything in the world is passing away. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. But we're living in a day when it's not just political truth that is being twisted. It's not just some kind of social media truth that is being twisted. We're living in a day when the very fabric and nature of spirituality is being twisted and morphed into something that has no resemblance to what God wants for humanity. So if there ever was a day when you need to love God and love God's word and love God's church, this would be that day. If there ever was a day when you need to stay close to God and stay close to God's word and stay very close to God's church, this would be that day. Little children, watch yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. There's always something trying to minimize God, minimize God's commandments, or minimize God's church. It would love to get in your spirit. It would like to pull you away like the apostates of John's day until they have turned their back on truth and they've gone a whole different direction and they've lost their connection with God and with his commandments and with his church. So little children, watch yourselves. Keep yourselves. Guard yourselves from all the idols that want to replace God and his commandments and his church in your life. I believe that John had confidence that the people he was writing to were going to do exactly that. He's not writing to shame them. He's writing to warn them. He's not writing to put them down. He's writing to light a fire in their spirit. Because before John wound it all up, Nobody knows, the scholars make guesses, nobody knows what order he wrote his five books in. First, second, and third John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. I like to think he wrote Revelation last. I like to think that after John got done sharing the gospel and after he got done telling us that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, the gospel of John is the oneness gospel of the New Testament. It's amazing. I like to think after he got done writing these letters, I like to think that he finally picked up his pen and on the Isle of Patmos, he wrote that book of Revelation. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That didn't mean he was having a blessing on a Sunday morning. When he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the Lord's day is that day when Jesus returns and sets everything right, rights every wrong, kicks the devil out of his position, and, and he is the victor, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And John said, I got in the Spirit. God picked me up and propelled me into the future and I was there on the day, the Lord's day, when Jesus sets it right and John got a picture of the end times. And you know what? The church is going to be okay. The church is going to not only survive, but it's going to thrive. But the cry of the heart of every Christian is the cry that John gave us at the end 
of the book of Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I love my life. I love my family. I love all of you. I love our beautiful country. I love our wonderful church. But this world is in a mess. This world is not getting better. Don't you fool yourself. This world is twisted and morphing into some sinister things that we can hardly believe. Those of us that are of age, we can hardly believe some of the things we're seeing today in our culture and in politics and around the world. Some of the violence and some of the perversion that's literally being exalted and lifted up and talked about as though that needs to be the new standard of normal. Let me tell you, I am not attached to this world one second longer than Jesus wants me to be here. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I've got family and friends on the other side and I've got all eternity to spend with Jesus and we're all gonna be there sooner rather than later. So even so, come Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't let the devil or the world or your own flesh get an advantage of you. Keep yourselves from idols. I sure would love to pray with you if you would lift up your hands and lift up your voice right now. I do feel the witness of the Holy Ghost in this room. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this local church. I thank you for this family of God. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Jesus, you've called us together. You've knit us together. You use us as we minister together. I thank you for every one of them. I thank you for a faithful church family that has survived and thrived the last several months of pandemic restrictions. I'm so thankful for them. I'm so proud of them. But Jesus, keep us from idols. Jesus, keep us from idols. Keep us from the incursion and the invasion of the world and the flesh and the devil because we want to be a pure and holy bride at the moment that you return, at the split second when you split the sky and the trumpet sounds. We want to be ready. There won't be any time left to get ready so God help us keep ourselves from the idols of this world strengthen your church fortify your church use your church let the church be the church let the church stand strong let the church stand up let the church stand tall let the people who know their God be strong and do exploits even as the world is floundering and losing its way I pray it in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the hope of the rapture and the hope of heaven. And we give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise because Jesus, you're everything. It's all about you. It's all about what we do with you and for you. I pray it over your people tonight in Jesus' name. I wish you put a postscript of praise on the end of that prayer and just lift up a little praise to God at home in this room. I wish you'd just give God thanks and praise. What a Savior we have. What a God we serve. He's amazing. He's miraculous. And he is triumphant. And because he's triumphant, his church is triumphant. Thank you, God. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. Oh, thank God.